0: Dear ones, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Gethsemane on the night before he died when they were sleeping and he came back and found them and he had been praying? He said, the spirit is willing, but the what? Flesh is weak. That's true of us, too, when we meditate on his sacrifice for us on Good Friday. We, all of our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And so let us pray. Lord Jesus, Come and be with us today in this little church, in this little place, a long ways from where you died for us and a long time after, and help us who are prone to sleep or be distracted and make your salvation and your gift and your love and whatever else it is that you want to teach each one of us individually, make it the biggest thing in our hearts so that our flesh does not get the best of us, but our spirit grows in faith in you and your love. Amen. Amen. Good Friday. I would like to quickly review the events in Jesus' life before we get to our little sermon text about the irony of the, the Jewish leaders wanting the tomb to be sealed. You remember, they, Jesus and his disciples were in Gethsemane, and that was a place in the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, that Jesus loved to go to pray. And Judas knew that. And he had decided to hand Jesus over to the Jewish leaders who did not want to get Jesus while he was in the temple courts because it would be obvious that they were the bad guys. So they wanted to arrest him in private and then release the message that he spoke against God in the temple. And it was guilty of blasphemy. So they wanted to arrest him privately, and Judas was their way. And for 30 pieces of silver, he led him to a place where they could arrest him where nobody else would know where he was other than his disciples. And Judas did it with a kiss. And they took him to Annas, who wasn't the high priest, but he was the godfather who used to be the high priest. And Annas was trying to get evidence from Jesus that would make their Jewish court easier for the consciences in the Sanhedrin. That group of 70 men. They were a mixed bag. They were not all men that were bent on evil, but most of them were. And some of them were very fair with Jesus. Two of them we know. Remember their names? Nicodemus and who? Joseph of Arimathea. They both had, had, had come to faith that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were in the Sanhedrin. Whether they were there for that late-night court trial that followed Annas' inquiry, we don't know. But, but we do know this, that Annas didn't get any good evidence against Jesus, so they turned him over to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. It, it, it convened in the middle of the night. In Jewish, by Jewish law, you cannot condemn someone in the middle of the night. You have to wait till daylight. But they were going to start court anyway. And they could not get Jesus to speak. And that fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. That he was like a lamb before the shearers is silent, So he did not open his mouth. Until finally Caiaphas said, I adjure you by the living God. He stood up in a rage. Tell us plainly whether you are the Christ. And Jesus said, yes. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven, the son of man to judge all people. Well, they accused him of blasphemy right away, calling himself God and ripped their garments and jumped out of their stone bleachers and rushed at him and he's bound and they blindfolded him and they began to spit on him and beat on him and pulled out his beard and then they backed off and they waited till it was daylight. And they reconvened and asked him one more time, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. And he said, yes, it is as you say. And they said, what do you think? He's guilty of blasphemy. We, he's, he's only worthy of death, they said. Ah, but they didn't want to be the ones to put him to death. And so Austri- uh, alienate a large segment of the Jewish crowd. They wanted Pilate, the Roman, who was the governor in town. He didn't normally stay in town, but he came with his soldiers for the Passover to keep the peace. He usually was over at Caesarea on the coast. And Pilate had a palace there, and it had like a judgment hall. And they say, so let's take him to Pilate, and let's get the Romans who are occupying Israel to condemn him to death. And really, the Romans would only condemn Jews to death, who were in their mind a very backward people, they thought, if they were guilty of of treason, trying to overthrow Roman rule in Jewish area. So they said that Jesus was making himself out to be the what? The king of the Jews. Well, you know, and I know as Christians what he meant, but many people did not know what he meant. In fact, the Jews thought they knew what he meant, and they thought he was going to be the great visible king who would rule over all of Israel and all the world visibly, and so the Jewish leaders said to Pilate, he's calling himself king. I'm going I'm to make this like Reader's Digest for a minute. He sent him over to Herod who was in town. And Herod wanted to just see a miracle and couldn't get Jesus to do it. Nor could he get him to speak. So they just made fun of Jesus, put a robe on his back, uh, a royal purple robe. And they, made, they, they harassed him as king of the Jews and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate's wife came in and said, I had a bad dream. That man is a just man. They are calling him a man guilty of treason, but he's really not up to any of that. So Pilate interrogates Jesus and he says, They they are saying that you are a king. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Are you asking for your own good or because others told you that about me? Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Do I care if you're the king? Would I ask in faith whether you're the king of the Jews? He goes, where do you come from? And he goes, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my servants would have fought for me. Pilate went out and he told the peak crowd, this man is not guilty of treason. We heard him. He said that he was the king of the Jews. So Pilate went back in and interrogated Jesus. And that's when they had that famous exchange. I came to bear witness to the truth. And what did Pilate say? What is truth? What is truth? he slammed the door shut. All truth to him was relative to people's own homemade faith. He released Barabbas. He wanted to release Jesus after he had had Jesus beaten. Now, do you remember what the beating was? I I looked it up a few years back just to see what people are saying, and then I tried to make something that looked like what they described. This is like a, a Roman flogging tool, a stick with some leather and metal and glass and bone on the ends and knots and they would beat people uh, the records in Roman, Roman books say that people that were crucified lived anywhere from three days to three weeks and so one of the things they did it just added to the torture was they would, they would scourge them to weaken them so that they would die much more quickly I don't know if that will stay there that will keep you paying attention so <laughs> But they beat Jesus with that. If you've seen The Passion of Christ, you know what that beating might have been like. Uh, for many, many years, people would depict Jesus on the cross slightly beaten, I would say. With, with uh, you know, his hair is almost not out of place under the, the crown of thorns. And, and maybe Mel Gibson's film, which was based on a 13th century mystic's vision of what she said God showed her what the beating was like. Maybe they took it a little too far, but not much. It was the, all the records of, of scourgings. Or Many people died while they were being scourged. There was a lot of blood loss, a lot of torn flesh. It was awful. It was horrible. So Pilate brought him out, and there's a couple fam- famous paintings like this where he brings him out to the people, and he says, Look at the man. Behold him. And what did they say? Crucify him. That wasn't enough. The pounds of flesh they had taken off of him. And so he washes his hands of Jesus, so to speak, as if he's not responsible for him. And he says, take him away. And his guards took two other men out and they took him out to crucify him. And there's a picture from the passion of Christ. I know it's hard to look at. When I picked it today from all the... I I wondered if I should, but I think it's important to, to just for a few moments on Good Friday to recognize that it's a horrible thing. So that we don't romanticize the cross... This is how hard it was for people who first heard about the Christ to accept the message mentally and emotionally. I did something very foolish. I, don't, I hate to tell you because I'm afraid someone, some of you will try it and be as foolish as I was. But I'm going to tell you. About, about a year ago, um, I, I got an email from one of you that said, we hear about this ISIS that's beheading people in a small village and over in uh, Syria, and we I, we, we missionaries are, are emailing back home to the United States, saying, "Pray for us." Is this true? So I asked a few people that knew about mission work in Syria, and then I just went. The foolish thing I did was went on the internet and put in Google, ISIS beheading, and I was able to witness a real life, dead beheading, and I was messed up for days. Now imagine these people being crucified to death and after being scourged, hanging outside your city in Jerusalem, the holy city as a Jew. Imagine how traumatic that was. And then to think that this man had never done anything wrong and was abandoned by God the Father on the cross. He said seven words from the cross. You remember what they were? Father, you can say it with me. Forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Right? What a beautiful testimony of forgiveness. Then he said a little bit later, Mary and John, your family now I'm letting go. He let go of his family. Something very, very hard to do. Anybody facing death knows it. And the thought of being replaced is irksome to a man of the house. And he gave it all up. And he took care of his mother. And then the thieves on the cross, one cursing him and the other defending him and saying, remember me. And he said, what? Today. You'll be with me in paradise. Loving a criminal from the cross. Loving his enemies. Loving his mom. Letting go. And then the darkness came at noon and stayed till three. And in that darkness, that famous Aramaic phrase, L-O-I, L-O-I, or Eloe, We all don't know how to pronounce it. Lama sabaktani my god my god why have you forsaken me the first line of psalm 22 which is a messianic psalm about the cross but also it was a cry of innocence there's no reason for me to be rejected except for others put on me and in that darkness he said i thirst and you know the story but i'll you know this is a sponge kind of like what they would have had one made of natural sponge and they would have this bucket with sticks that they put sponge on up to the people. They would try to give it to him before they crucified him because it was like a sedative. It was gall, which was like wine vinegar mixed with myrrh. And it, was, it would make you drunk, silly drunk. Jesus refused it because he wanted to take the full wrath of the cross. But what did he say after he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's been on the cross now for hours. I thirst. And they stuck that up there and you bit down on it and it would, it would cleanse the back of his throat and it would be no longer dry and parched and he could shout. And so what did he shout? It is finished. Paid for all the sins of the world. Finished the perfect life. Fulfilled all of the scriptures. The greatest life on earth is finished. I finished it for you. I did it all. None of you will be able to say that when you die. You won't be able to say it is finished. You will leave with unfinished business, but it's okay because he finished it for you and you are forgiven. As long as you are like the thief saying, remember me, he says today you'll be with me in paradise. I finished it for you. And with that victorious cry, he doesn't let anyone kill him. He decides not to take another breath. Father, Into your hands I commit my ghost, my spirit, my breath. It's the same word for all of those. It means all of that. And he dies. And the temple curtain is ripped so that the presence of God, the access to the presence of God is is open. And the earth shakes. And some people rise from the dead. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to get the body. The Jewish leaders... Remembered something that the disciples were temporarily forgetting. When you, are, when you are in deep emotional sorrow and pain and confusion and everything has gone the opposite, 180 degree opposite of what you had hoped, and you, it's, it's your, you're experiencing one of the biggest losses you've ever experienced in your life, you will forget the value and the weight of important words. And they forgot the value and the weight of his words, On the third day I'll rise again. And in fear, the disciples hovered behind locked doors. But the hard-hearted Pharisees and Sadducees who were part of this whole gig, they were not forgetting, but they weren't remembering for the right reason. That's the irony. When Jesus had said those words, I will rise up on the third day, he meant for us to have comfort, and he meant for them to have faith. Some people would ask, why did he have to rise from the dead? Because he said, when I have risen from the dead, you will know that your sins are paid for and that I have conquered death, which is a result of sin, and you will live forever. And you'll rise up on the last day of the world, just like I did on the third day. All of our hope is in that resurrection. So when he said, I'll rise on the third day, it was the greatest proclamation of expectations and of hope. And there his disciples had forgotten, but not the bad guys, and they didn't want anyone to ever have Easter. That would be worse. See, by killing him, we're done with his religion. We're done with his followers. It'll go away like the other so-called messiahs. We have got to keep that body in the grave. So they went to Pilate, and they said, will you make sure that the grave is secure? Eh, scholars debate. Was it a Roman of soldiers or Jewish? We don't know. I think it was Roman, but it doesn't matter. You, with that, you can buy a cup of coffee with 75 more cents <laughs> with what my opinion is about. Nobody knows. But it was, it, was, it was sanctioned by Pilate. And they wanted enough soldiers that if the disciples came to take his body, that they wouldn't be overpowered. So do you think it was too? Probably not. Right? Probably not. Probably a a, a group of four or twelve or more, right, to guard the tomb so that the disciples wouldn't come and take the body. Let's read this passage together out loud. Let's do it. The next day, Saturday, the one of the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first because it will actually create a following that they cannot stop if it's all based on what? A word and not a visible person. If it's based upon a word, they could not stop it. It'd be worse. Pilate says, go and and do that. I want to stop right there before we go on, though. You are God's people. You are here on Good Friday because you are the disciples. But in the heart of every disciple of Jesus is an old Adam That is, just like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. You maybe think it's crazy and foolish that they would call him a deceiver and then want to guard the tomb so the disciples wouldn't come and steal his body. But you live like an atheist too often. And you know that he rose from the dead. And let me explain what I mean. These men do not believe Jesus is God, so therefore they are atheists. They think this whole situation depends on their ingenuity and their leadership at anticipating the other side's moves so that they can control everything. The idea. Every now and then, a Christian will say to their pastor, I've discovered that my biggest problem is I want to be in control. And it's a huge aha moment when a person realizes that. But what's kind of humorous for all of us is that we think it's kind of unique to us. <laughs> no, the most passive person in this room is a control freak. You just feel like you've got things under control right now, and you try to control it sometimes through your passivity. And you can just kind of sleek in and sleek out, whatever it is. But every one of us lives like an atheist and tries to control things. When we fight in relationships to get our way, or we We anticipate some of the people that we love the most, what their response might be to something that we want, and we're afraid that they might say no. And so we try to engineer a way to set it up so that they will say yes. Or we push each other's buttons, their hot spots, and we try to control them that way. Or we worry as if it all depends on us. Right? And we live as if we are God's. And he's not really there. And we have to be in control. And sometimes, in the name of faith, we do some really wrong things and say some things that are very wrong, thinking we're offering God service, when in fact, we're just trying to control it. And you know what Jesus says? On the third day, I will rise again and prove to you that I died for those sins. You're forgiven. But you are a control freak by nature. You're just like these guys. Half of you is. You're forgiven. I love this. I learned I, somebody gave me this poster like this, said these words on it. I don't have the poster anymore, but I put it up in my college room. Two foundational facts of human enlightenment: there is a God, and you are not Him. These guys. Took it to another level, though, in their irony, in their behavior. Let's read the next verse. They said, take... A, no, Pilate said, take a guard, Pilate answered. Let's read. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. We all know about a stone in front of the, the uh The tomb. Some archaeologists have found that some of the stones are of someone of more modest means and they think Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy but not among the very rich. Were more like a cork that goes in a bottle and not really rolled in front. We don't know for sure. But most of them that you see when you go in the Holy Land or you, you, they, they want to say this is what like Jesus' tomb was like will be like one with a stone rolled in front of it. What was a seal like? Katrina, put the next slide up. This is only about the size of a quarter, maybe a half dollar that's what a seal, it's it's either wax or clay with an insignia from a ring pressed in it when it was soft. Now what they would do, go to the next slide, is they would sometimes, if it was a tomb and they wanted to seal it, they would put a rope across it and on one of those ends they would press over that rope or that string that Roman wax with that seal or it was clay. And if that was broken, then they knew that someone had gotten in. They couldn't have a way of doing DNA or fingerprints, but this was their way of having a surveillance camera. Because they knew that it had been bothered, and they could proclaim, somebody came and took the body because they broke the seal. So you have, you have too many, 10 or 12 guards. I put this up there because a lot of people think it was just two, and, but you can kind of see the seal idea in the middle, and two guards. But it was probably 12, you know, 12 or more guards, and they are sealing it shut. Now, isn't it an irony that they should be praying that Jesus would come out as their Savior? And they're doing everything they can to seal it shut because they're so dark in their unbelief. Well, when he did come out, when he did come out, the stone was not rolled away before he came out. The stone was rolled away so people could look in. But when he rose from the dead, he was already out, and they rolled the stone. There's no verse, you go look for it. It says, "The angels rolled the stone away, and Jesus walked past,." <laughs> he rose from the dead as God. He passed through doors. remember? He just suddenly appeared inside of the locked house. Okay. And these guys that were there fainted. They, they fell like dead men, it says. So scared by the angels? And this is what it says. Some of them, not all of them, went and told the Jewish leaders. Now, if they're Romans, why would they not run and tell Pilate? Whoa. Yeah, Roman soldiers in Roman law, if you lost a prisoner or you fell, even just fell asleep and you didn't lose a prisoner, you could be put to death. That's why the guy in Acts 16 says, what must I do to be saved? Because there's been an earthquake and the jail is open and he's afraid. His life is over, right? And, uh, and he sees they have faith and they're not worried about death. And so he asks, what can I do to have that? But these guys sent some to the Jewish leaders because what are we going to do? And the, the Jewish leaders said, here's a bunch of money. And we got a bunch more and money is what makes the world go round. So it, when, when you tell people you fell asleep on your watch and that the disciples came and stole the body and then we'll pay off other people, if they're gonna, your, your superiors, if they're going to get all over you. And this is what the gospel says. And so the word spread that the disciples had stolen his body. You know, that rumor was going around whenever the disciples would preach. And so when Paul wrote the Corinthians, guess what he said? Jesus appeared to the twelve. He says, Peter, then the twelve. And he says, then he appeared to five hundred people. Some of whom are still alive today, on his day, when he was writing. So, yeah, the rumor was out there. The devil's always spinning lies. You can have a, you're always going to have two choices. Believe your reason or your lies or believe the truth. But the truth was he had risen from the dead. And you know what that means. I, there was something about that picture I picked earlier, chose earlier for you to look at, that I want you to remember. I don't, I'm not going to put it back up there. He was looking at the camera, he was looking at you. You're forgiven, it's all gone. You'll never be judged for your sins. None of them. Because he was looking at you. In Hebrews 12 it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of giving you grace and forgiveness. This is obviously... A drawing or coloring that would appeal to kids. It's off of a Sunday school lesson and it makes me... We're going to leave it up there. Let's leave it up there for the song that follows because it's got these two guys up there. It reminds me of a friend of mine, a pastor in one of our churches said, and he was telling the rest of us in the room last October and I said, ah, that's Good Friday stuff. I got to share it at my church on Good Friday. He said... One of the mothers of a child, a mother of a child in their school that has not yet become a member of the body of Christ or their their congregation, walked into his office, threw down this children's lesson with a picture like this on it and said, if that is what you're going to teach my child at this school, I'll never bring her back. That is horrible. And what do we say? Yeah, you're right. It's horrible and adorable all at the same time. Because it's the truth. God's wrath was very clearly evident on that one man. And it was hard to look at. But God's grace met that wrath and took our sins away and took his death away And he gave us eternal life. That's what makes Lent and especially Good Friday both solemn and happy all at the same time. Amen.